People from all over the world listen to Arut Sheva, Israel National Radio. Shalom, my name is Nathan Shapkes from Nederland, and I live in Jerusalem. Stem up on Arut Sheva, IsraelNationalRadio.com. You are listening to Israel on the internet. Hola a todos, mi nombre es Daniel Cohen, nací en Buenos Aires, Argentina y estoy viviendo aquí hace 7 meses por un programa de Masá. Me encanta escuchar a Luz Cheva, www.israelnationalradio.com por todas sus noticias y los debates. Arut Sheva, Israel National Radio, spreading the light of Israel around the world. Shalom, 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 and welcome to the Noahide Nation Show. I'm your co-host, Ray Patterson, and as always, I have Adam Penrod with me. Adam is uh, our newest, but one of our older co-hosts. Ray, always is a pretty big commitment. I'm not sure exactly <laughs> I can make that commitment, but we'll see. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess I was uh, I was pushing something that I was hoping for. <laughs> it's not easy doing a show by yourself. So it's always great to be able to interact. <laughs> Folks, anyway, it's, it's good to have you here with us on uh, this fine Tuesday. As we mentioned last week, Adam and I kind of want to take the show in a little bit not so much a different direction, but kind of uh, take us off the road a little bit, if you will. Rather than going the straight line, we're going to kind of go outside of that box because we want to not only talk about specific topics, which are, are pertinent to Noahides and Gentiles and also Israel, but we also want to be talking in particular about current day events things that are happening today that we as non-Jews in particular, uh, how we can view these things from a practical standpoint of how the no-hide laws would apply to these particular types of situations, and hopefully by utilizing modern-day events, things that are happening now, things you're hearing about on the news, we can begin to gain a you know better understanding of how what's going on in the world today is not so good. And and I've I've come to believe in a an idea that the more I ponder it and, and look back at things and look at how things are today, I realize it's so true. And that's the statement of that which you em- that which you tolerate today, ah. you will embrace tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. I mean, it, it just I it, it never occurred to me to look at it in those terms. And yet, so much today is just part of life that 10 years ago was so taboo. I mean, it's hard to believe it even came into being, and yet here we are. And there's all kinds of examples. I don't want to get into them because I could spend the next, well, the rest of the show doing that. But we're going to you know, kind of pick on some things that are our current events, and hopefully we'll be able to hone in on a, on a few things to kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about as far as getting outside of our normal box. And maybe this is, we should explain, why is this important? Well, I think sometimes when we talk about the Noahide Laws, maybe we're a little too theoretical with it. We talk about it from the standpoint of well, the Rambam says this or this rabbi says that, and we talk about it as if it's an interesting study, but it has no real application. Well, the fact of the matter is the Noahide Laws are meant to guide everything you do. It, they're meant to be the way you live your life, to inform the decisions you make on an everyday basis. And if you're not using the Noahide laws to help you make decisions for your life, you're not really an observant Noahide. And we talked about this the last couple of shows. Mm-hmm. We were trying to give everybody an idea of what a Noahide is. Right. And when we're talking about Noahides for Noahide nations, we're talking about people who take the time and the pains to observe the Noahide laws. Well, what does it look like to observe the Noahide laws? How do you use the Noahide laws to determine what kind of position you should take, whether it's political or whether it's every day? And that's why this is so important, that we're going to be emphasizing this approach. Right. And hopefully you folks will – in fact, I know they're going to, everyone's going to be able to catch on right away to this, and uh, hopefully you'll really enjoy it. But uh, we do want your – 
you know, comments on this. You know, what do you think of this idea? In fact, you may even have questions about a particular application going on in life today, something that may have occurred that you're really wondering is, you know, would this be a violation of, the, of Torah or not? So, you know, fire those questions, you know, by us. I mean, we're, we're looking for all kinds of things that we can actually take these Noahide laws in modern day terms and apply them to our everyday life. And that's not to say that we won't have times where we're going to talk about something conceptually or theoretically, because sometimes it, you need to do that in order to um, make the application. Right. Yeah, I call it mind expansion. <laughs> so it helps outside of getting outside the box. It makes my box bigger right. when you start looking at things in that way. And we thought today, you know, Adam and I talked about this. We thought that we would really, what would really make it appropriate to start off with would be a topic that kind of takes us back to the time of why Hashem decided to eliminate mankind and fortunately, Noah was preserved, his family was preserved, and as a result, mankind was preserved. And the reason for that destruction was theft. Theft is a, I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah, we talked, uh, you know, if you, if you go back and read about the, the story, uh, corruption is part of it, but that corruption surrounded theft because theft and robbery are mentioned multiple times. And violence. Yes, and, and violence, but that was also part of theft. The the reasons, the things that occurred while the theft well, was going on. Just think about two kids. One child has a toy, and the other child wants the toy. Mm-hmm. And so the child who wants the toy goes and grabs it. What does the child who had the toy do immediately? Slap, yeah. yell at, right? right? It becomes a very ugly situation very right. quickly. Well, as adults, of course, we don't just slap each other. We don't just... You know, cry to mommy. We have we to do, deal with it, <laughs> but we do get violent. We yes. we can get very violent, and so theft often leads to violence. Yes, in in ways that are then violate other Noahide laws. That's right. So, but we decided we go ahead and have a, a a hard look at something that's going on today that I, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have heard about in the news. And it's these recent revelations based on a a new book that was just recently released. And I believe the the title of it is Throw Them Out. And it's referring to corrupt politicians here in the United States at the congressional and uh, Senate levels. And, of course, obviously this would could possibly mean a a particular president in whatever administration it is, Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. This particular type of thing is going on regularly. So we thought we would kind of touch on this because it is current, and you know, hearing about it really makes my head hurt. It makes me feel ill. You know, Ray, there might be some people out there who don't really believe that uh, there's anything such as a corrupt politician. <laughs> so maybe you're telling something new to, to some of these people out here. I don't know. That could be true. We'd all like to, to think the best of, of people and give them the benefit of the doubt. But when... Especially in our own party, the party Yes, well, for. of course. And, but when evidence starts you know, flowing forward, I mean, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that two and two is still four. You, you know? So this particular subject has to do with this book. And I haven't even had a chance to read the entire book. I've heard about it. I've listened to interviews with the author. And the... Uh, the evidence that's presented in the book actually does name names. Now, I'm not going to name those names here today because we hope that you'll go out and, and do some of the discovery on your own. But this book talks about, let's call it insider trading. You know, many of us are familiar with the uh, Occupy Wall Street protests that have been going on. And they're, you know, some of what they're trying to convey to people is that they're the, the 99% and the 1% are Wall Street and they're making millions and, and hurting taxpayers are getting bailed out and getting million dollar bonuses. I mean, this is something you've, you've heard before with regards to the bailouts and just everything with banking. Uh, enough to where, you know, it makes people sick to, to continue to hear about it. But this has now been expanded into the level of the politicians. The very people who are leading this charge against 
the banking industry and against Wall Street and against corporate America and, and against this 1%, I'll call them. And it turns out that, you know what, the politicians are doing basically the same thing. Maybe it's in a different form, but it's theft in another form. This is this was called crony capitalism. That we're, that exactly. We're with here. By way of insider trading, right. which for you and me, Adam, if we were caught getting this kind of information and using it to benefit ourselves, uh, we would have been sharing a cell next to Martha Stewart. Because that's what she got nailed for. And now I have to sit back and really admire her for having to deal with the consequences and, and did deal with the consequences, and yet our politicians are getting away with it scot-free. It's that, not even against the law for them. And I just want to say that if I were next to Martha Stewart in jail, I, I don't think that would be the worst situation as long as she was still had you know, access to an oven or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you could learn how to bake a cake or cookies yeah. or something. Or she could just bake them for me. Okay, well, there's them. always that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, back, back to, to the, the point. man shouldn't bake a cake or right. cookies from time to time. <laughs> yes. But back to the point. No, I think what you're saying is uh, is great. This is, uh, you know, the, the Occupy Wall Street movement, I've had some problems with it. But, you know, there is a, there is a germ of truth there. I just don't think that the... Uh, People who are participating really understand what that germ of truth was, and the fact of the matter is, is that um, the the things that have economically hurt this country are really the truth of the matter is it's not just a matter of rich people; it's a matter of politicians who are greedy, right, for their own self interest, right, and different types of corporations and, and businesses. Uh, again, the, the the big businesses. Who are also greedy and looking out for themselves, right. working together to be to, to maximize their their greed and and to to really to enrich each other, to enrich each other at the expense of everybody else. Right. And this is, and if, if if I can say that I would agree with anything with Occupy Wall Street, it would be along these lines. Although I'm not sure they really understand that that's what is really going on. I don't know if they really have that clearly defined either. And I guarantee I don't care for the way they went about doing it. Right. However, that's not our, our point today. Sure. Uh, we do have freedom of speech, and so we can leave it at that and debate how they went about it in detail later on if we so desire. Sure. But in this particular case, let's go ahead and, and give an example. Uh, let's say, for example, the politicians were passing legislation regarding health care. And that particular legislation uh, had to do with a Medicare pharmaceutical legislation that was going to now become law. Well, obviously, this would benefit the pharmaceutical companies who now know that the taxpayers, by way of the government, are going to be paying for people's prescriptions. So now all they have to do is get the doctors to start prescribing more. And what happens? Their revenues start going up. So... What happens is, is while they're debating these, you know, particular pieces of legislations and the particular aspects of the legislation, the politicians are, in essence, dealing in insider trading. Why? Because they are in advance of the, the general public, who doesn't really find out about it until the law is actually implemented. They're finding out in advance that a law is probably going to be passed that has to deal with this Medicare uh, prescription bill that is now going to pass and the pharmaceutical companies are going to now be able to enrich themselves as a result of this bill being passed. So what do the politicians do? They will do, in this particular case, they will take and purchase pharmaceutical stock in companies that they feel are going to benefit, which in essence is going to wind up being all of them, but what they then do is they go out and they purchase stock knowing that the stock is going to rise as a result of this bill being passed. So they go out and buy the stock. The bill is passed. The pharmaceutical companies, by virtue of this, their stock rises and then the politicians turn around and sell it. And there are there is evidence. There are, are some of these politicians who literally made hundreds of thousands of dollars in a single day because 
of this insider trading. Now, if Adam and I, or if you, were to do this, we would be thrown in prison and the the key would be tossed. It would be gone. We'd never see the light of day again. In fact, there there's a guy, uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, Bernie Madoff, wasn't it? Or no, he was a Ponzi scheme. Well, that's a whole different story. But nonetheless, he couldn't get away with this kind of, of stuff. Uh, Martha Stewart didn't get away with this insider trading. That's what she got nailed and for. You know, it's not just doing insider trading. The fact that uh, there are politicians who are able and willing to make money off of the knowledge of certain bills being passed that, le- that 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 will lead to this amount of money seems to also imply that they would be willing to pass bills not in our interest, but the interest of what's going to get them rich. Precisely. And this is a, a big problem because isn't our system of government one which we – which in which we're supposed to be sending people to represent our best interests, right? And when they these politicians go to Washington, they cease representing our best interests, but only concern themselves with their best interests. They're no longer doing their job, right? They're doing something illegal as well, but but they're not even doing their job. And I, I believe that um, the way to, to to change this is really to make people more accountable in regard to. The Noahide laws, or as the book says, throw them out. Throw them out. And start putting people in office who uh, are adhering to a more godly way. Let's call it. People have to have morals, and they have to have the morals that are given by Hashem, not by the environment they were raised in. I mean, because there's criminals out there that were raised in a criminal element for from the day of birth that they think that being a criminal and doing the activity of a criminal is perfectly fine. But the moral code is established biblically by Hashem's commandments. So what we're, what we're looking at here now is the discovery of these politicians making the, the cliché come true, the rich get richer. And now we know how. And now there's evidence now pointing to these people, and there are names being named. And let's ask the question, well, how is this applicable to the no-hide laws? How is this theft? Well, my side of this would be, number one, the taxpayers, when they have their taxes raised in order to pay for this prescription drug bill for senior citizens, it's not a matter of whether that's right or wrong, okay? What I'm saying is that the taxpayers are the ones paying for that. And when a politicians, when they turn around and vote in bills that enrich the people who are donating to their campaigns, the pharmaceutical companies in this instance, when they are benefiting from that, we can I can look at this and say, you know what, they are stealing the taxpayers' money to pay for that bill which they passed into law so that they could enrich themselves by buying stock at the low price and manipulating it so they would be able to sell it at the higher price. So that to me qualifies as corruption. A corruption in the form of a, a type of robbery, theft, and therefore they, quite frankly, should, they should all be arrested and tried. And I, I mean, I think that even 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 more would this bill have passed if it weren't going to make them rich? If such a bill, if such a bill, were, you know, would such a bill have been passed if it were not going to make them them rich? If the bill is no good then absolutely it's theft. It's theft so that they can make themselves rich. Right. So, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that wasting someone's money in a way like this is clearly theft. Yes. So I, I agree. I, I think that, uh, I don't think there's any question that this is relevant to how you observe the Noahide laws. And, the, the, you know, the, the issue, though, is, is that what do you do when everyone is corrupt? What do you do with when everyone's corrupt? My gosh, that is a, a, such an excellent question. In fact, I was talking to my wife about that very question this morning. And all I could think to say was revolution. When we look around the world, in, in, in these Middle Eastern countries in particular as of late, we have Syria, we have Iran, we have Egypt, we have Libya, I have all fought the government openly and th- you know the, they've had just tremendous amounts of violence 
committed against them so the politicians could protect that which they were doing. But these revolutions or regime change may be the only way to do it. I mean, I don't know how else you do it. The only way you could really do it without any violence is by all the politicians just bowing out, all of them resigning, let's hold another election, and and start rethinking the types of people that we vote for. Here's my position on all of this, and I think revolution is the right word, but I don't know that it's a revolution where we throw out one band of thieves for another band of thieves. That's why I say we need to rethink how we're and who we're voting for. I, but, you know, so, but who do we pull choices for office from? The people that we that we put that, that run for office very often they come from a privileged background, mm-hmm. right? Have money, of course. Have money, and and uh, perhaps uh, their reason for running is 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 honor and fame and uh, power and and all of these different things. What we need a revolution in is is really on a much more grassroots level. You know, there's a saying amongst uh, the sages that. A people deserve their government. Right. <laughs> a people deserve their government. And I want everybody to think about this for just a minute. If we have a government and at its head are corrupt politicians, and this is causing suffering to us, this suffering is our fault as individuals of that, of that nation. Right. If we're going to change it, the first thing we have to do is change ourselves. When you see theft being a problem for the guys in, in the office – it's a sure sign that the, the, the theft is a problem for us here in the you know at, at the bottom of the the big totem pole of power. Absolutely, we you know this this whole acceptance of theft. The reason they were they've been able to get away with it for so long is because we allow ourselves to get away with it in our everyday life. If you want to make a change in the government, first you need to start with yourself, and you need to stop accepting theft in your everyday life. Right. Obviously, at all times, if you can prevent theft from happening, you absolutely have to try. Otherwise, in my estimation, if you see it going on, you know it's going on, and you allow it to go on, you're as guilty as the person or people who committed the act. It's like the people who robbed the bank. Who's more guilty? The people who went in the bank to grab the money? Are they more guilty than the guy whose vehicle that they jumped into and he drove away and escaped with them? Who's more guilty? Those who stole the money or the guy who provided the escape? I mean, they're both as guilty. And that we have to figure out ways to begin to defeat this. We have to fight back. In any event, it's going to have to be fought against. And we are the ones who are in control of that. And either we do it or we don't. And we have a big election coming up here in the United States. And that vote... I honestly am looking at this upcoming 2012 election occurs. We will have made the decision because we're going to find out who we really are as a people. I I hope we can find our way out of the dilemma we have found ourselves in. So anyway, uh, Adam and I are going to need to run. Gosh, this time flew by once again. And we've got uh, our friend, Mr. Doug Taylor, coming up. He's going to do uh, another teaching for us this week. And in the meantime, you folks have a, have a great week. Adam, we'll see you next week. See you next week. Take care. If you listen to Israel National Radio... Chances are you believe the land of Israel is special, and the people living there need to know that they have your support. Now you can show that support and have the time of your life doing it. The annual Bet-El Gala Dinner is the place to rub shoulders with the movers and shakers of Israel amongst lavish cocktails, fresh sushi, and an open bar, followed by an elegant dinner with entertainment. Israel's Deputy Foreign Minister, Danny Ayalon, will be speaking to you about the importance of Israel and other Israeli-related subjects. Just go to beteldinner.org and sign up for having the time of your life. But hurry to reserve your ticket. Spaces are limited. You'll be glad you did and have lots to talk about for a long time afterwards. That's beteldinner.org. Go there now.
Hello, and welcome to the Noahide Nations radio show. My name is Doug Taylor, and I'm glad you can join us today. We're going to talk today about two verses in Proverbs that have some significant lessons for how we live our everyday lives. The first is Proverbs 9.12, and the verse reads, If you have become wise, you will have become wise to yourself. But if you have scoffed, you alone will bear it. And this verse came across my radar because of another verse that I was looking at that was referred to me by a friend, and that is in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 6. It says, if a bird's nest happens to be before you on the road, on any tree or on the ground, young birds or eggs, and the mother is roosting on the young birds or the eggs, you shall not take away the mother with the young. And then verse 7, which follows, says, you shall surely send away the mother and take the young for yourself so that it will be good for you and will prolong your days. Now, Nachmanides has a very interesting and very extensive commentary on this verse. And I want to read you just a part of it from uh, the version of Nachmanides that's translated and annotated by Rabbi Dr. Charles B. Havel. And this section reads as follows. He says, The benefit from the commandments is not derived by the Holy One himself, exalted be he. Rather, The advantage is to man himself, to withhold from him physical harm or some evil belief or unseemly trait of character or to recall the miracles and wonders of the Creator, blessed be he, in order to know the eternal. It is this which the rabbis intended in saying that the commandments were given, quote, for the purpose of refining men, unquote, that they may become like, quote, refined silver, unquote. For he who refines silver does not act without purpose, but to remove therefrom any impurity. And I'm continuing on now with my Nachmanides. So also the commandments eliminate from our hearts all evil belief and are given in order to inform us of the truth and to recall it always. Now this very same Agata is mentioned in the Yalam Denu in the section of These Are the Living Things, And what difference does it make to the Holy One, blessed be he, whether one eats of an animal which is ritually slaughtered or if he just stabs it? Do you benefit him or harm him at all? Or what does it matter to him if one eats clean animals or unclean? And then Nachmanides quotes this very same proverb, If thou art wise, thou art wise for thyself. Now, we get ideas in society about God. And sometimes we get ideas in society about God being an angry figure or maybe like a big parent who is going to uh, whack us if we do something wrong. But there are really only two things that we can know about God. The first is that we can know what he is not. And the second is that we can know how he relates to the world. That's it. We can only know what he is not and how he relates to the world. So we relate to God based on understanding and operating in accordance with the ways that he relates to the world. And that is through the systems that he created, the laws of nature, systems we see around us all the time. And we operate then on the basis, hopefully, of consequences so that we look in the laws of nature and the systems around us and we see what the consequence of a particular act would be and we take that into account in hopefully choosing a wise consequence that will produce a good outcome. Now, when the book of Proverbs talks about the fear of God, what does that mean? Does that mean that we should be scared and frightened, you know, as if the boogeyman is going to get us or or as if an angry dad is going to punish us? No, actually, in the book of Proverbs, the fear of Hashem, the fear of God, is talking about the fear of consequences. It's the fear associated with recognizing the reality of God's systems. The righteous person is concerned about the practical consequences of his actions. So the actions that the righteous person takes are for himself. We don't affect God by our choices. God is unaffected by us. The choices that we make on an everyday basis, 
They're for us. They affect our lives. So the commandments are not to please God. They are for the benefit of man, the benefit of us. It's a different view to see that God set up the system for our benefit and that he is unaffected by our decisions. Therefore, the decisions are for us. And from everything I know, God isn't glad when I do something that we would consider right or sad when I do something that would be considered wrong because God doesn't have emotions. And once we understand that, it changes our whole view of what it means to walk in the paths of Torah. We sometimes hear people talk about doing something for God. And you've got to scratch your head and ask, what are they thinking there? I mean, do they think that God actually needs their help? That God needs them to come in and save things? And, you know, we're used to that in our society. I mean, the idea of the hero who steps in and saves everything. I mean, action-adventure movies are full of that sort of stuff. You know, everything would have been lost if the hero had not crawled through obstacles and defeated the bad guys in order to be able to cut the blue wire right before the global destruction. But that's not the Torah approach. There are no heroes in Torah. There are only people acting in accordance with the commandments which God set down for our benefit. He doesn't need the compliance. It's for us. So what you do, you do for yourself, and you get the reward. So, for example, what's the reward for exercising regularly? Well, you feel better. You have more energy. What's the reward for studying hard? You learn more and you master the material. What's the reward for eating well? You stay in better health. God didn't create a system of rules that have no purpose just to make life hard for man. He created the system in order to benefit man. And by following that system, man gets to live the best life possible. And that is a reward. If we're living life hoping to please an outside authority figure, like a big version of a parent, that's missing the point. Because this isn't about trying to please an outside authority figure. This life is about trying to make the best choice for ourselves, not about pleasing or appeasing an external authority. Now, if we think of God as a king and we want to honor the king, how would we do that? Well, by learning and understanding his decrees and the wisdom that he shared with his kingdom. And by doing that, we start to understand some of the reasons behind the decrees. And we see the beauty and the wisdom that the king exhibited when he set up those decrees. We see their benefit for the kingdom. And then that leads us to starting to follow those decrees, not because the king said so, not like it's just an arbitrary thing, but because we see the reasons behind the decrees, or at least some of the reasons, and we see some of their benefits for man. And at that point, our relationship with those decrees changes. Because in our minds, they're no longer arbitrary decrees of an all-powerful king. Rather, we see the benefits to ourselves in following them. And so we desire to follow them because we see their underlying wisdom. That's analogous to the difference between believing something and knowing it. When I know something, I don't need the belief because I see the basis for it. I mean, no one today believes in electricity, even though they haven't physically seen it. But they have seen the results of it, the effect of it. And they know enough of the consequences of it to have a healthy respect for it and operate with care around it. Not because someone told them that they had to do it, but because they see the benefit to themselves. One more verse that I want to pull into this, and that's from the book of Job. In Job 35 and verses 5 through 8. And they say, look at the heavens and see. Notice how far the skies are above you. If you sin, how do you affect him, him being God? If your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? 
Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness only affects mortals like yourself, and your righteousness only benefits human beings. So it takes us right back to what Nachmanides is saying in Deuteronomy and what King Solomon is saying in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 12. If you have become wise, you will have become, you have become wise to yourself. But if you have scoffed, you alone will bear it. In other words, we get the consequences. The acts that we do are for us. So when we go to take a particular course of action, we need to ask ourselves, is this a good course of action for where I want to take my life and what my life is about? Is it exhibiting the values that I want to have in my life? If I do that, if I follow the commandments, if I work on my character growth, if I work to perfect my soul, the benefit is for me, not for God. And if I fail to follow the commandments, then the adverse consequences are for me and no one else. So this isn't about, the the Torah life is not about pleasing someone else. It's about recognizing that what I do is for me and reflects what I truly want to do with my life. Okay, let's take that idea then in the back of our mind and hold on to that and move on to Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 3. And the verse reads, God will not let the righteous go hungry, and the existence of the wicked will be rejected. God will not let the righteous go hungry, and the existence of the wicked will be rejected. Now, that raises some questions that we need to ask if we're to understand this verse. First of all, when it says God will not let the righteous go hungry, what does that mean? How does that work? And what does it mean that the existence of the wicked will be rejected? And then, as we've discussed in some other classes, what does the first half have to do with the second half? Usually, uh, or often in Proverbs, there is a contrast between the first half and the second half. Often, the righteous versus the wicked, or a wise person versus a fool, uh, or something like that. So, what does the first half have to do with the second half? And it says the existence of the wicked will be rejected. Well, statistically, you know, if we look around, there are some wicked people that seem to be successful in life, and that seems to be contrary in a practical way to what this verse is saying. So how does that work? And it doesn't seem like that it's righteousness that would save you from hunger, but wisdom. So why does the verse say the righteous, uh, God will will not let the righteous go hungry, rather than God will not let the wise go hungry? So let's see if we can get our arms around this. The Meiri says that when the verse says God, we don't know who God is or what God does, but we do know how God relates to us, as we were talking about in the previous verse. God relates to us in two ways. Number one, the laws of nature, which he created. Okay, we see those systems all over the place. We work with them every day, the law of gravity, law of uh, atmospheric uh, sciences, Uh, The law of tides, if you swim out into a riptide, the riptide will pull you under. And unless, you know, God is intervening uh, in a personal way with you, the riptide's not going to make a distinction between a wicked person and a righteous person. It's just going to pull under whoever is there. Uh, Similarly, you know, if there's a shark out there that hasn't had lunch, uh, sharks probably not going to make that distinction either. So we try to order our lives around the laws of nature. That's a way that God relates to us. The second way that God relates to us is a personal relationship called Ashkacha Pratas. This is also a system, and it is not like our parents. Uh, It is a mistake to think that God is just a bigger version of our parents, or, as we mentioned earlier, like an angry dad or something like that. 
that somehow I need to do certain things in order to win brownie points with God so that he'll give me what I want or won't whack me. That's not the Torah approach. Learning true ideas about Torah helps to dispel notions like this. Uh, And a large part of the Torah is about telling us the system of when God relates to us uh, and when not. Now, most of the time in the book of Proverbs, when God relates to us, it's in a practical way, through the laws of nature. So, through the laws of nature, both the righteous person and the wicked person may be hungry. So we need to understand what's a righteous person and what's a wicked person. Because in studying this, it can help us to be more successful in life. Now, there are two types of pleasures. There's one in fantasy and there's one in reality. For example, taste and smell are reality pleasures. You know, you taste a, a bowl of haagen ice cream uh, or you, you smell a, uh, a, a turkey roasting. Those are reality pleasures. They're, they're pleasures that occur in reality. But greatness, that's not a pleasure. It's really a fantasy because that's only created in the mind of the person. Things like, like jealousy are not in line with reality. Now, it's important to understand that the Torah is against fantasies. It's against not being in line with reality. If your needs are in line with reality, then you should always be satisfied. But if your needs aren't in line with reality, then you'll lose the pleasure for that need. Apart from Torah law, the difference between those pleasures that we should partake of and those which we should not partake of is a quantitative difference. For example, take uh, drinking alcohol. If someone wants a drink after work, we can't necessarily say that's a bad thing. But if a person has to get drunk, then that quantity is harmful to him. And after a while, he'll just get hooked on it, and he won't really enjoy it anymore. It's an escape from life for him. He's just trying to get away from things. But it's not really an enjoyment of life itself. And you'll notice, interestingly, that in quantity, a lot of the pleasures in the physical world can destroy you physically if you overdo it. So the laws of nature, interestingly, take away the very pleasure that you're after if you go after too much of it. And the way that you tell is in the quantity. For example, um, you have a bowl of uh, a Haagen-Dazs ice cream every once in a while. Okay, tastes good. It's nice. But if you had to have a carton every day, well, okay, now that's starting to get to a perhaps dangerous extreme. It's not that the act itself of eating ice cream or drinking alcohol is wrong. That's the opposite extreme. Oh, well, I won't do any of that. That's wrong. No, that's not the Torah approach either. The Torah doesn't hold against enjoying the physical world. What the Torah is against with regard to the pleasures is the quantity where you go too far and then it harms you physically or where you go to the opposite extreme and you abstain from everything. That's also wrong because you should enjoy it. I mean, God created it. If you enjoy the correct amount, you'll be able to enjoy the physical pleasures. Now, some people fall into this trap possibly because it can be exacerbated by what we would call their religious emotion. They think that if they abstain from legitimate pleasures, that that's a good thing. Sort of like there is somehow some benefit in torturing myself. You know, like I win extra points with God or something. But God provided us with those pleasures. So what kind of gratitude would it be to the Creator to reject a gift that he's provided to us. This is where the righteous person carefully evaluates the correct quantity of the pleasures so that he'll always enjoy them. He won't get hooked and have to need more and more. Now, note that the verse says that the righteous is not hungry. That means that the wicked is hungry. So why should a wicked person be more hungry than the righteous? It's because the nature of the wicked is that the more he has, the more he wants. 
smokes one cigarette and he wants another. Then he wants three a day, then a pack a day. The same with money. People think if they get X number of dollars, then they'll be satisfied. But what happens is when they get there, their desires just become that much greater. And so they're never satisfied. So what's the difference then between the righteous and the wicked, except the area where they're not satisfied? In other words, aren't they really just the same in that they want something and are never satisfied? It's just that they differ on what they want. You know, the righteous is never satisfied in learning because the more he's learned, the more he wants. So what's the difference between him and a wicked person? The difference is that the wicked lives for a certain idea. He's striving for a goal. Think about the Inquisition. You know, people are going for God. They're driving for a certain thing. It's the same with someone who wants to make a million dollars. They're driving for this goal, but it will never be satisfied when they get it. When have you ever seen someone who made it their goal to become a millionaire? And once they made the million, they stopped working and just enjoyed what they have. By contrast, when a person learns, he's not learning for the goal. He's only moving at the speed of his mind. He's not so interested in the answer as he just wants to understand the phenomenon. So the, the result is not critical to him. Once he gets an answer, he moves to the next area so he can be involved in the learning process again. He's not in it for the answer. He's only interested in the enjoyment of learning. The wicked are in it for the goal. So the nature of learning is not to gain more knowledge, but to understand the phenomenon that you're studying. So the righteous person is interested in the pleasure of learning. He's involved in the process, not seeking the end of it. But the nature of the wicked person is to fulfill his emotional needs. That desire becomes an ideal. He has to strive for it. And then he builds up the pleasure to something more than it really is. So when he doesn't have it, he feels pain. So now we can understand the verse. The wicked is a person that's never satisfied because his fantasies aren't in line with reality. His fantasies are always a step ahead of reality. But the total righteous person is always satisfied because he's living in reality. The wicked can never be satisfied because their desires are emotional. And the nature of the wicked is to fulfill a fantasy, and that's an impossibility. So now we can see that God will not let the righteous go hungry, and the existence of the wicked will be rejected. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Noahide Nations radio show. I hope you'll be able to join us next time. And in the meantime, make this your very best day yet. Shalom. I am Walter Bingham, host of Walter's World. Throughout the Jewish world, there were events this month to mark the 73rd anniversary of Kristallnacht, the Night of the Broken Glass, from the 9th to the 10th of November 1938, the most horrendous Nazi pogrom before the outbreak of World War II and the final solution to annihilate the Jews. But it was on the 28th of October, just a few days before in that year, when I was not yet 15 and still lived in the place of my birth in Germany, that an event took place that was the trigger for those pogroms which I shall never forget. During 1938, the Polish authorities became concerned about the German annexation of Austria in March of that year, and also about the increased persecution of Jews in Germany and Austria. It was, of course, not their welfare that the Polish authorities were anxious about, but the fear that many Polish-Jewish nationals would either want to escape the Nazis and return to Poland, or be forced to do so. So in mid-October 1938, the Polish government issued a denationalization law which annulled the citizenship of Poles living abroad for more than five years unless they receive a special stamp into their passport issued by Polish consulates before the end of that month. As could have been expected from anti-Semitic Poland, all Jews were refused this facility. When the Nazi regime learned that Polish officials would not stamp the passport of Jews and thereby making all of them stateless, the Gestapo chief Heinrich Himmler ordered that all Polish Jews are immediately and forcefully repatriated to Poland. The policy at that time was not the annihilation of Jews, but to get them to leave the country. 
It was during the small hours of the morning of the 28th of October 38 when about 20,000 men, women and children had to respond to the dreaded knock on the door. They were arrested, permitted to hurriedly pack one suitcase and with an allowance of just 10 marks per adult were transported to the Polish border in sealed trains. When the Poles heard of this, they closed the border. No more Jews was the order. So imagine the situation with Polish machine guns facing them and German bayonets behind them. These bewildered Jews were stranded in no man's land. Eventually, a Jewish welfare organization, I believe it was the joint, was allowed to hastily erect some shelter. The conditions were grim and food was short, but the Germans and Poles argued for two days. Eventually, the Poles were forced to accept this by now dejected, hungry and tired mass. The largest number was interned in Spongin, or pension in German, a small Polish border town. My own father was among them. When the Gestapo came to arrest him, they also asked for me. Fortunately, with great presence of mind, my mother said I was out, and she does not know where I went. In fact, I was at a Jewish school in another city, some 45 miles away, where luckily the authorities did apparently not know of my existence, and so I escaped almost certain death, unlike my father, who perished in the Warsaw Ghetto. A 17-year-old German-born Polish Jew, Herschel Grünspan, who lived illegally in Paris, received a postcard from his family telling him about their deportation and their desperate plight. He became so angry, so incensed, that he called at the German embassy in Paris and asked to see the ambassador. But one can, of course, not so easily see an ambassador, so he was taken to Ernst vom Rath, a third secretary. When he entered the room, Herschel Greenspan drew a pistol and shot him. Von Rath died of his wounds on November the 7th. His death was the trigger to give the signal for the long-before-prepared so-called spontaneous program Three days later, during the night from the 9th to the 10th of November, with the unfortunate, not representative name Reichskristallnacht, the night of the broken glass. Because worse than glass, that night, most synagogues throughout Germany, Austria, and the by then annexed Czechoslovakian Sudetenland were set alight. The sacred Torah scrolls and books were burned or damaged and valuables plundered. I witnessed the flames of one of them when I arrived for school that morning, which was situated behind the synagogue precinct. Thousands of Jewish businesses were destroyed, 30,000 Jewish men sent to concentration camp, and it's documented that Himmler only waited for a suitable moment to implement these plans. When Herschel Grinspan was arrested by French police, he protested, Being a Jew is not a crime. I am not a dog. I have a right to live, and the Jewish people have a right to exist on this earth. Wherever I have been, I've been hounded like an animal. There are conflicting reports about his fate, but it can be safely assumed that he did not survive the war. So let us never forget the brave Herschel Grinspan.